Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. My name is John. For those I've not had the opportunity to meet, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. If I could ever help you or talk with you, I would love to. For now, this morning, if you have a Bible with you, John chapter 1. John, the first chapter. If you do not have a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the lobby. Please uh, take one, use one. You can keep it. You can put it back, whatever you need to do, but it is available for you. If you know someone who needs it, please give them a copy of God's Word. No greater gift that we can give than the truth of God found in His Word. John chapter 1. This morning, continuing our Advent series about the first coming of Christ, looking at the first coming of Christ, this morning we're going to focus on the prophecy of Christ's coming. Looking at the prophecy this morning of Christ's coming. As you find John chapter 1 right there, would you direct your attention down to verse 9 and 10. John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In John 1, John chapter 1, in fact, all of the the chapter here really is the prologue to John's whole gospel. The start of John chapter 1 is the prologue to the life of Christ. And so in John 1, you have... John's writing of the time prior to Christ's birth, which is interesting that John himself may or may not have seen if he's a blood brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, or if he is not, he may have been born around the same time. Uh, But John is writing, either way, to that point in time prior to Christ's birth. In John chapter 1, as we read verses 1 through 18, even before he names Jesus Christ, he's writing about that time prior to Christ's birth. You'll remember last week we studied in the beginning was the word, starting with all of time and then speaking in verse 9 and 10 to that period of time prior to Christ's birth. I thought the words were interesting. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming. And so that is what we are going to launch off of this morning as we look at the prophecy of Christ's birth. Would you pray with me today? Father, we thank you for time in your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that illuminates it in our hearts and minds. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit this morning. Father, while we read words on the page, may your Spirit give light and understanding to what we see and what we read and what we learn. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage us also to live what we learn and what we read from your word. Father, illuminate our eyes to the truth of Christ's first coming. May we understand the impact that it has for today. Father, I pray this morning as your word is preached in a great many places in this country and around the world, I pray, Father, that the sinner would be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray, Father, that the holiness of your people would be promoted, and I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. My goal today, very simply, to help us understand the important connection between the prophecy of Christ's first coming and the impact that it has for our lives today. As we walk through the Advent season, it's very easy for us to be consumed and concerned with the first coming of Jesus Christ without actually giving thought to 
What impact does the first coming of Jesus Christ actually have on my life right now, today? To many, this may seem a bit strange. That thought might be a little counterintuitive. But I wonder, how often do you consider the reality of Christ's birth and what it means for you right now? The easy and most tangible answer that we would give is, through his first coming, he died And I now can place my faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ and be saved from the wages of sin. Praise God. That's true. That is a true reality found for our life today in the first coming of Jesus Christ. But there is a greater point to the first coming, and it was alluded to even last week as we began the series. So we're going to trail this morning the prophecies of Jesus Christ's first coming and then consider what that means for us today beyond the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sin, there is great bearing and impact in Christ's first coming. John writes, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light If you'll remember, last week we studied those first three words, in the beginning, John relating to the words of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, also in the beginning. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so last week we dealt with Christ, the Messiah, words meaning anointed one, his coming into the world as the Word of God, as God. So we have in John 1, 1, the Word. Then he shifts as he works through the first three verses, four verses, five verses. The light was coming in him was life, and life was the light of men. Then he talks about, in verse 6, 7, and 8, some may note, Pastor, why did you skip those? Because verse 6, 7, and 8 are highlighting the work of John the Baptist. And I simply couldn't work on John the Baptist and Christ's first coming today. John the Baptist sent by God to declare and proclaim Christ. Verse 9 the true light. John 1, 1, the word. John 1, 9, the true light. The true light, which, what does it do? John wrote, the true light, which gives light to everyone. The true light, which gives light to everyone. Christ making light known to humanity. Remember, we briefly discussed last week uh, and it's Christmas, so it's, it's out there, but the prophecy of Isaiah found in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Specifically, Isaiah 9, verse 2, Isaiah prophesied some 700 years before the birth of Christ, saying that a people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. But John 1 writes, they've not understood that light. They've seen it, the light has shone in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. They have not overcome What this great light, what is this great light as Jesus comes into the world, as the eternal Son of God steps out of eternity and into time as the incarnate Son of God, remember the word incarnate means embodied in flesh, as the eternal Son of God takes on flesh, becomes a man, and is known to us as Jesus. He also brings with him the light of God. He makes known the light, the truth, the way to us. We preach Christ for the exact same purpose as John. Today, a people walk in darkness. 
Indeed, even perhaps in this room, there are people who are in darkness. And so we preach Jesus Christ, who is the true light, who, as John writes here, gives light to everyone. He was coming. In John's day, John writes about his coming into the world and then having come. In our day, we talk only about he has come. We are not waiting for the true light to come anymore. We are answering the question, who is Jesus? In light of the light that came into the world. John writes, the true light was coming, which gives light to everyone. In 1 John chapter 1, which is farther in the back of the Bible before the end of the book by Revelation, John writes in 1 John 1, we have seen that light with our eyes. We have touched that light with our hands. We have heard that light with our ears. John writes, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim it. We are, we are tasked, as we consider missions this morning, as we consider the mission of the church, the mission of Christians, we are tasked with the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim him, to make him known, to explain the light that we have received through faith in Jesus to those who walk in darkness. The Bible indeed has a central character, and it is Jesus. The prophecies of Christ's first coming. There are at least 42 different references found throughout the Old Testament to the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Christ. We say the birth of Jesus Christ, but I think it's important that we keep out in front of us, until he was born, no one knew him as Jesus. God told Joseph and Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. No one knew this anointed one's name prior to his incarnation. There are at least 42 references to the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, the anointed one of God. 42 references found in 11 of 39 Old Testament books of the Bible. I mean to give you that number and statistic by way of this point. The coming of the Messiah is a main theme of God's word, the Bible. It is how God revealed himself to mankind. 42 references in 11 of 39 Old Testament books. A further statistic. Every one of those 42 references are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, one or two, that's interesting to me. You know, when in our day, when someone makes a prediction, we're like, wow, they got that right. If someone makes two predictions, we're like, whoa, on a roll. If someone makes three predictions that are right, we're like, whoa, they must be like psychic or something. No, it's lucky guessing. The Bible tells us 42 different times across 11 books of 39 by different authors, mind you, that this event will take place. And in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of those prophecies comes true. You should be astounded by that fact. If you're not, I'm not meaning to insult you, but that should astound you to say, I need to consider the words of the Bible more carefully. 42 references to the birth of the Messiah, to the Messiah coming into the world, and all 42 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No singular birth, no singular other event outside of the birth of Jesus matches the criteria of those prophecies. Not one. Further, 
there are over 300 prophecies in the 39 Old Testament writings of the Holy Bible that are all fulfilled in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are like, I don't know what I would read the Bible for. What do I read the Bible for? You read the Bible because it's talking about one person, the Lord Jesus. It's revealing his glory, revealing who he is, revealing the nature of God, revealing the sinfulness of man, revealing our need for the Savior that he is. Well, 300 references to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Listen, Pastor, when I read the Old Testament, I don't read anything about Jesus in there. I read the Old Testament, I don't, I don't really read anything about Jesus that's because you're looking for his name. And his name wasn't given until he was born. 300 at least prophecies to the Lord, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah coming into the world. Luke records, you can see it, if you're looking at John 1 still, you can flip your Bible back one page maybe. I have to flip one page. Luke chapter 24 verse 27 these disciples are questioning the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, and they're walking with him along the road. He is now alive out of the grave, walking with these disciples. The Bible says they were kept from knowing his identity. How beautiful that the Lord Jesus Christ out of the grave is walking with these guys who knew the story of what happened to him. Are you the only one? They literally say to him, Verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? Could you imagine? This is why later in Luke chapter 24, this is why later the disciples say, did not our hearts burn as he spoke? They came to understand that he was the Christ. And he says, verse 27, Luke records, beginning with Moses, and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He journeys with them. Would you stay with us? Yes, I will. Do you have any bread? Yes, I do. As he breaks bread, they recognize who he is. Later in the chapter, verse 44, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I'm uncertain as to what your motive is in reading the Bible every day. I hope that you do. I hope that you pick up God's word and open it every single day, but I want you to understand something. As you read God's word, you are learning one story. You are learning one point. You are being led to one truth, and Jesus says, all of those writings declare things about me. Jesus Christ is the, is the main character of the Bible. You are not. I am not. We are not the main character of God's word, no matter how much we might want to think we are at times. No matter how often we may read God's word and think, wow, that sounds a lot like me. We are not the main character of God's word. Humanity is a bit consumed with itself. It can't help that. And so as humanity reads God's word without God's spirit, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit showing us the truth of his word, man is going to inevitably read the Bible and think that it's about them. 
Well, it is about our salvation. Correct. We do learn about salvation in the Bible. The Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. The Bible prophesies over and over. We read the prophecies of Christ's coming. Jesus says, all things concerning himself and Moses and the prophets, all things written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and Psalms, the law, that is the writings of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and I forget the rest, they get confusing. All of those little books before you get to Matthew that you typically never read, they're all talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all telling you something about the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming, his life, what he's going to do. Even the psalm that we read this morning, he will judge the nations. The entirety of the Bible is declaring Christ. We know that the subject matter of the New Testament is Jesus. We don't struggle when we read the New Testament to understand we're looking to Jesus. Hebrews says the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. We're looking to him to live like him with faith in him. But he's still the main character of all that. We look at all of his life, all of his work, all that he has commanded us to do. He says of himself at the end of Matthew, teach my disciples to observe, to obey everything that I have commanded you. We know the New Testament subject matter is Jesus Christ and how we are to follow him. What we fail to do is understand that all of the Old Testament subject matter is also Jesus Christ. It is one narrative being told by numerous authors over a period of more than 1,400 years. We must endeavor to see all of Christ in all of the Bible, and what a wonderful, deep, incredibly rich, and necessary topic all of Christ from all of Scripture is. So this morning, my work is simple as I see it, to help us consider what is written of Christ's first coming, his birth specifically, in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. I know that I race through scriptures often and people want to write them down. This morning I made a special little cheat sheet for those that like to write them down. They'll be up there for the rest of the morning. You can write them down. We're not going to look at all of these. We are going to look at every one of the New Testament references found on the fulfillment side. So if you would find 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want you turning in your Bibles. I want you doing Bible work. I want you connecting dots in the scripture about the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of scripture in his coming. The prophecy found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is the first in order of Bible uh, what am I looking for? Because I'm not a smart person. In, in order that the Bible is composed, there we go, it's composition, finally got it. In the biblical composition, the first prophecy that we have of Messiah, of an anointed one, of the coming Savior, is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What does it say? The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. I love the interpretation. You have to read different versions of the Bible, different English translations of the Bible to get this. The English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from here this morning, the English Standard Version says, you will bruise his head, he will bruise your heel. Our young children, ages four, five, and six years old, have been working through 
the greatest story ever told, and they're learning it from Genesis on up. And I love what they refer to Christ as, the snake crusher. The snake crusher. I prefer, and I think that the Christian Standard Bible, if you have it, and I believe that perhaps even the New International Version, if you have it in your hands, I can't remember exactly, they use the words, he will crush your head. And so I become very fond in my own translation. You're like, Pastor, that's blasphemous to have your own translation. No, no, no. You need to know what the Bible says, and you need to be able to articulate that to people. And so when you say something like, he will bruise his heel, he will bruise his head, people are like, oh, that's no big deal, just a bruise, whatever, that's not a big deal. When you talk about Satan bruising or striking is another word, the heel of Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ crushing the head of the serpent, there's much more emphasis placed on that. It's not just a striking, it's not just a bruising, it is a crushing of the serpent's head. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the prophecy that we find is that the Messiah, the anointed one, will have victory over sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, direct your attention down to verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we are able to be given victory from God is because that victory has been achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He will crush your head. If you read back earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it was a pleasure to preach through this last year, you will find the end of all sin Sickness, sorrow, when death is defeated. Verse 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ will be victorious. The anointed one, the Messiah, when he comes, will be victorious over sin. That ultimate victory being found in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God, able to bear the punishment and the weight that our sin deserved and dying for it, yet fully God, able to be resurrected, able, he says of himself, able to take up my own life. Death could not hold the Savior in the ground. We find the first reference in Genesis 3.15, he will have victory over sin, fulfilled countless times over. I love the first Corinthians reference. I would encourage you, if you're writing these down, I see some people scrambling. It's really fun to watch you all too. I wish I had like a body cam so you could see yourself. But you're like, and I'm going to just tell you, as a pastor, I love it when you write things down. Even if it's, i got to remember to tell him. To <laughs> write stuff down and let's talk about it. Genesis 49, verse 10, indicates that the anointed one, the Messiah, the ruler, the leader, will come from the tribe of Judah. If you read Genesis chapter 49, you're not going to find anything extremely significant in the regular plain reading of it. You're just going to find a father telling his sons how they'll be blessed this is Jacob telling all of his sons the blessings that they'll find, or not, because his sons were something else. And he comes to Judah, and he says that Shiloh, or peace, will come from Judah. The rule will not depart from Judah until he comes. Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles 
the ruler will come from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're not going to trail through all of this, but this first chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, or Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, genealogy of the book of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is encompassing all of time in history. Abraham was the father, verse 2, of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And so on, down through, you come to the end of the chapter. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Another reference to his title being Christ, not his name. Jesus will come from Judah, Matthew starting his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, while you're finding John chapter 12. You can find John chapter 12. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, some consider this to be one of the most critical points of Old Testament scripture that exists. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is declaring the great, the great prophet Moses, the great priest Moses, the great deliverer Moses, the great savior, some say, Moses. And all of a sudden, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God through Moses says to the people of Israel, from among your brothers... I will raise up a prophet, one greater than you. Like Moses is great, Jesus is greater. Everything that Moses does represents things that Jesus is also doing. And Moses himself saying, God is going to raise up one from among you who is greater than I. God says through Moses to the people of Israel, this is very specific in Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak what I command him. This is Moses, what, somewhere around 1,200 years before the birth of Christ? John chapter 12, verse 49. For I, Jesus speaking, have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. As you read the Old Testament prophets, I really encourage the book of Jeremiah. When you read the book of Jeremiah, you will read all about priests who did not speak the words that God said. They failed. The first priesthood failed. The line of Aaron, we're going to explore this in Exodus next year. The line of Aaron failed, but Christ does not fail. He comes as man fully obedient to the Father, and he speaks only the words that God the Father tells him to speak. Luke chapter 1 in your Bible today. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> in 2 Samuel chapter 7, considered by many to be the, the epicenter of David's life, considered by many to be a high water mark of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have God speaking to David David wants to build a house, if you're familiar with the account. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a house. And God says, have I ever dwelt in a house? 
the enormity of God should, should capture our attention as we consider what he says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. I can't, I can't give you an illustration. I could pull out a chair, I could have a seat. It doesn't illustrate it enough. Like a throne. When a king sits on the throne, they are demonstrating all of their dominion, their power, their might, their wisdom. Everything that a king is, is encaptured in the picture of a king sitting on his throne. And God says, heaven is my throne. I sit on the heavens, enthroned as God. And the earth is where I put my feet. I learned something very interesting in the Middle East about 10 years ago. Uh, exhausted after a day of hiking through some trails and mountain areas and whatnot. We went to this uh, place to eat and sit down with all these other people who were there to see some of the sights, and it was great with our missionaries. We had a wonderful time. I sat down utterly exhausted and threw my feet up on this footstool, right? I mean, show me your hand if you've ever just been whipped, and you're like, and you put your foot up, right? I mean, you all know what it means to put your foot on a footstool, right? In the Middle East, you don't put your feet on a footstool. You don't show them the bottom of your feet. The bottoms of your feet are unclean. I couldn't help but think about this analogy as I considered God's word. I put my feet on the earth. That was just powerful to me. Maybe it was only me, but it's still powerful. David, in 2 Samuel 7, I want to build you a house. Will you build me a house? I've never dwelt in a house do I have need of a house? David, have I said, why have you not built me a house? God is not interested in a house. But David's like, I live in a house. In the ark, it's in a tent. He says, my God, you live in a tent. Let me build you a house. And God says, oh, David, you're so faithful. You're such, such a servant of mine, my prince. You've killed too many men. You can't build a house for me. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and 16, God says to David that David's throne will be established forever and there will come one from David who will reign on his throne forever. David, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. This is the angel speaking to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This prophecy, underline it, put an asterisk by it, whatever you want to do, this prophecy has caused great problems in our biblical interpretations. Because immediately after King David comes who? King Solomon. And what is said to King Solomon, your rule will be established forever. And so there are those who look at, there's the establishment of the line from David. Jews will look at that. That promise is not for Jesus, it was for Solomon. This is a major biblical interpretation error. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He will sit on the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever and ever. Daniel talking about the same things, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, all of Moses declaring Christ. I will give to him the throne of his father David, 
You can stay right there in Luke chapter 1. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Declared from everything, the prophets, the Psalms, the law. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, he will be the son of God. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, today I have begotten you. You are my son. We dealt last week with the begotten son of God, how the eternal son has always existed eternally and then became incarnate in the flesh to the earth. He will be the son of God. Look at verse 32, Luke chapter 1 again. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Verse 35, Mary's confused. How will this be? I am a virgin. I've never been with a man. The angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting, and I made this note in my own study. Psalm 2 and Luke 1 are still both prophecies. Understand that distinction. Luke 1 is the angel telling Mary what's going to happen. That's still a prophecy to her. That's prophetic language to her. But then we have the rest of the account of Luke where we see it happening. So it is fulfilled in the birth of Christ. He will be the Son of God. Isaiah chapter 7. He will be born to a virgin. Also Isaiah 7, he will be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14, he will be born to a virgin. He will be called Emmanuel. We just examined in Luke chapter 1, Mary said, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel telling her, oh Mary, highly favored and blessed forever. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. There is something that happens divinely that we do not understand. I want to call out this error Maybe you're here today and you have exposure to the Catholic faith. The Catholic faith preaches something called the Immaculate Conception. It's a heresy. God overshadowed the necessary human means of conception. And the power of God, having created woman, caused her to be pregnant with the Savior. Everybody wrote down Immaculate Conception. You're going to read it later, and I encourage you not to read it out loud to your children first, okay? There, you've been warned. Don't say I didn't warn you. He'll be born to a virgin, and he'll be called Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, you shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Micah chapter 5 says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Out of you, Bethlehem, though you are smallest and least in the tribes of Judah, of Judah, further earlier prophecy, he will come from Judah. Not only will he come from Judah, he'll come from Bethlehem. Out of you will come one for me who will rule, who will reign, whose coming is from old, from ancient days, the prophet Micah declared. Luke chapter 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And all went to be registered, verse 3, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. We see the prophecies. We see the fulfillment. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? Pastor, I'm, I'm getting wore out a little bit. You're back and forth. You don't normally do this. No, I don't, but sometimes it's necessary, and this is one of those moments. Matthew chapter 1. Direct your attention down to verse 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Messiah will come, and when the Messiah comes, he will save his people from their sins. God, through the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance. And even as I start quoting it, I'm like, I don't think that's 1 Timothy 3. I think it's 1 Timothy 1. It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Pastor, this excursion has been really fun. What exactly is the point of it all today? What is the great takeaway? How is my life impacted today by this historical work you did through the Old Testament, connecting Old Testament prophecies to New Testament fulfillments of Christ's first coming? Can you help me understand why this is important to me? All of Scripture declares the glory of God. God sent his son into the world to save out of the world those who through faith call on him. Matthew chapter 1, the angel says to Joseph, he will save his people. We don't like to dwell on this thought. God has a people and he is saving them. The true light was coming Light, which gives light to all men. We are to proclaim that light. God is saving a people unto himself out of the world. In all of these and so many other scriptures, they're already fulfilled, yet there are promises and prophecies regarding Christ that are yet to be fulfilled. If every one of these prophecies, 42 or so in number, across 11 Old Testament books of 39 books of the Bible, if all of these 42 prophecies are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ, and there are 300 or more prophecies that relate to the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you as a Christian have zero reason to doubt that every promise God has made to you, he's going to make good on. And if you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the great warning is that we're talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. First Advent conveys something in and of itself. You'll notice that we don't simply call it the Advent of Jesus Christ. We call it the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. That title alone, that phrase alone conveys another message. If there's a first, has there been a second? Will there be a second? And this is the great impact on all, of, on all of our lives right now, today. There has been a first, and a second is prophesied. How has your life lived this past week in the hopes and light of the coming of Jesus Christ a second time? What actions, what urgency, what sin did you cast off to be purified for a groom who's coming for a bride without spot or wrinkle? How did you cast your cares and your hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ who one day will return? Who Paul said, we all should love his appearing. Oh, I love the appearance of Christ. It's where I find my forgiveness. Paul's not even talking about the first coming of Christ. He's talking about his second coming. 
the first conveys that there is a second. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus who has taken up the angels telling the disciples who watched Jesus go into heaven. People are like, I don't believe the Bible. What are you talking about? I don't know how you don't believe the Bible. Do you understand that the men watching Jesus go into heaven died telling people that Jesus was the Christ and he's coming again? You believe all kinds of stuff that you've never even come close to understanding what the person was meaning when they said it. These men died telling the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he's returning. Well, that's great. I don't know what impact it has on me. They gave their lifeblood so that you would know this truth. God saves you to sanctify you, a people for himself. Acts 1.11, the angels saying to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I know so many people that are experiencing grief right now. People having passed. Friends, loved ones dealing with the uncertainty of health conditions and family members' lives. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the coming of the Lord, brothers. We do not want you to be ignorant. We don't want you to be afraid about it. Jesus is coming again. He writes this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be together with him forever. That is our hope. That is the purpose of Christ's first coming, you understand. Oh, Christmas, I enjoy it so much. That's great. We all love babies. Babies aren't offensive. Crosses are. The birth led to a cross, which is leading to a second coming, because that man was taken off of the cross and placed in a tomb, and that God walked out. And how are you living in light of the first coming of God, considering that there will be a second coming? of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, doubt is a reality of our sin-weakened state. We could look over and over in the scriptures. How long, O oh Lord? I'm 42. I've been in church all my life. And all my life, he's coming soon. Saints in the room that are older than me that have been in church most of your lives and all of your lives you've heard, he's coming soon. When though, Lord, life sure is getting long down here. When are you coming? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times that the Father has appointed, but like a thief in the night, are you prepared as we consider the first coming of Christ, they weren't prepared. Next week, we're going to look at the birth. They were not prepared. Sorry, there's no room. We've got no room. Doubt is a very real part of our sin-weakened condition. In moments of doubt, I urge you, in moments of doubt, remember that so many prophecies of Messiah's first coming, they're all fulfilled. 
if every prophecy of Christ's first coming is fulfilled, then you have every reason to know and believe and be convinced that every prophecy of his second coming and all of God's goodness to you in Jesus is also going to happen. And we are called to live as such. Do not doubt, remember, that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. To those here this morning who may not be trusting in the Lord Jesus right now, What a great opportunity for you to come and gather with so many who are holding on to the hope that they have in Jesus. You're not here this morning because you thought, I'll go check out this church. Uh, It's Christmas, so I'll go. I was invited. You're not here for that reason. You're here because a holy God appointed a moment for you to come and hear the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you now have to look at that truth and say, who is Jesus? The only one to ever live and never sin. The only one to ever die a sinner's death to redeem sinful man. That's Jesus paid for your wage of sin so that we, in the most absurd exchange ever, could simply believe on all that Jesus did and be saved. God is holy. He is separate from sin, separate of sin. Man is sinful, entirely condemned because of sin, to those who have not called on Jesus Christ, the Bible says Jesus is the only atonement for sin. Call on him and be saved. I urge you this morning, if you are here and your faith and your hope and your celebration of Christmas is not looking forward to Christ's second coming, call on Jesus now and be saved. Father, I thank you for your word and the deep truth that all of the prophecies of Christ's first coming are fulfilled. And the greater reality, God, that if all of these have been fulfilled, all of the promises of his second coming will be fulfilled. Father, and even off of that, the, oh, Father, the tangents in our life. If Christ has come, then Christ is coming. And oh, Father, every other promise and guarantee to your people through faith in Christ is true, it's real. We can see victory over sin. We can see freedom from the wage of sin. We can look forward to the hope of eternity. We can look forward to the hope of leaving this life and being united with you forever in eternity. Oh, Father, would that all people would understand how great, how awesome this promise is. Would that all, through faith, would embrace Jesus Christ. God, I pray, stir the hearts of your people, not to doubt, but to embrace the great reality of who you are. Father, I pray that for those today who maybe were tempted to be bored with the sermon, oh God, I pray that all it did was deepen their resolve that you are so good and so true. Every word is true. Father, for those who are here and do not know you, I pray save them. It is your work, but you've given them opportunity to hear all they need to hear to call on you and be saved. Father, I pray that we as a church would continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ until he returns. God, that we would never weary of telling people God is holy, man is sinful. Christ is the only sacrifice to save a sinful man and bring him before a holy God. Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? And Father, that as we give this call that you have given, as you, Lord Jesus, came, bringing the light to all, Father, that you be glorified in the salvation of sinners. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for coming to save sinners. Father, thank you for this time. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, 
please contact us at info at the Until next time, stay in God's word.